All right, well, today again, our theme is going to be about joy. Our text is what Drew read for us earlier today, and that's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read that for us here in a minute. I'm going to try not to have Linus's voice in my head as I read it too, for those that think of Luke 2 in those terms. But first, I wonder if we want to just take two steps back for a minute, take a deep breath from the cute kids and focus on joy from Luke 2 that I'll read here in a minute. When I say the word joy, or when you know this is the third week of Advent, you hear joy, what comes to mind? Is that idea fresh and living for you? Or does it feel maybe more like a concept that you give mental assent to? I know for a lot of us here in this room, uh, each of your stories this year, there's been a lot of disappointment and pain and real hurt and suffering in 2021. So for me to say joy could feel a little bit flippant. Maybe uh, for you, you've heard the story of Christmas so many times. Again, Linus and Snoopy, right? You're like, yeah, joy, I get it. It just feels kind of like a fairy tale or maybe a bedtime story, right? On the night before Christmas and all through the house, that's what joy feels like to you. But what I want us to really think about today Uh, As I've been preparing uh, to preach, I've not wanted to preach out of that space, but wanted to preach out of joy. And what comes to mind for me, maybe you've seen this, maybe you haven't, but it's a film by Peter Jackson. For those of you that know who Peter Jackson is, I already have your attention, right? And it's the movie is They Shall Not Grow Old. And Peter Jackson takes the story of World War I, that when you open your history book, you see a documentary, it's all kind of grainy, black and white film, right? And it feels kind of distant. It feels like, did that really happen? Well, Peter Jackson takes the story of World War I and he puts it in living, vibrant color in this movie and it really makes a historical reality come to life and you really feel the weight of World War I and all that it meant. And so I hope through the Holy Spirit today as we're in Luke 2 together, that joy starts to turn from black and white in your heart to color. So if you haven't already, please have your Bible open in front of you. Put your finger on the text, and I'm going to read Luke 2, verses 1 through 11 for us, and please follow along with me. This is God's Word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we need you today. We need to hear from you today through your word. 
Father, may you open our eyes to see the wonder of Advent, the wonder of Jesus coming again. Revive any weary hearts who are here. Stir our hearts to treasure your good news of great joy. We ask that you will open your word to us this morning and open us to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Luke 2, again, a familiar text, but we're going to explore it together and kind of peel some of the layers back, and I hope we're going to come away with joy, more living in color in all of our hearts. So we're going to do this in three ways, primarily towards the end of our text. First, we're going to see good news, then we're going to see great joy, and then we're going to see for all the people. So first, good news. Again, look down at God's Word in front of you. Luke grounds the birth of Jesus in reality, in history, in a particular time, in a particular place. Those are real names. Those are real places, places you could go back to and visit today. Maybe some in this room have. So it's not a fairy tale, again, or a bedtime story. It's a matter of historical record, just like World War I. The birth of Jesus really, truly did happen. And then in chapter 2 here, Luke He's a doctor, and he's really a historian, and what he's doing is really intentional. He's going to compare and contrast for us, us, excuse me, two different kings and two different types of kingdoms. So look at verse 1. He doesn't bury the lead. Caesar Augustus is named. Most of us in this room are probably familiar with who this was, right? So the most powerful and important person in the world at the time Luke wrote this and that the first audience heard the book of Luke. He was the emperor and ruler of the Roman Empire. So no small king in some small kingdom nobody knew anything about. The king and emperor of Rome. He was actually considered a deity as Caesar, a deity. So that's the backdrop for the birth of Jesus. Luke notes Jesus was born during this time with Caesar Augustus on the throne. And again, Luke is going to move from one type of king to a different type of king. And then look at Caesar's decree just kind of, I know this is familiar language again, but just think about how Caesar Augustus is ruling here. Caesar's decree, it's really providential because it makes Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem, right? And that's really important because that's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Probably a lot of you already know this. Micah 5.2 prophesies that the ruler would come from the city of Bethlehem. So this is happening as King Caesar is making these decrees, but really it's providence that is ruling. It's God the king who is bringing about these events. And often God uses the ordinary things of life to bring about, bring about his purpose and will, just like taxes here in Luke 2. And then look down in verse 10. We see the heavenly messengers declare that the birth of Jesus is what? Good news. And that term, good news, when you hear that, think gospel, okay? So the birth of Jesus is good news, it's gospel. And again, the reason why this is so important is Luke is weaving a story for us here. He's, no, he's calling to mind for the original listeners of the book that the birth of the emperor Augustus was first announced with this same term, right? With this good news. And that Augustus was also, when he was born, he was hailed as the arrival of our Savior. So Luke is painting layers, textures to the story here of two different types of kings. 
So when the angels announce this birth of good news again, it's like breaking news across the ticker for those that watch TV, right? It is heaven declaring this is really important. This is an announcement. This is good news and good news about a king who has come. This is heaven announcing the awaited Messiah, the long-promised ruler who is going to come from Bethlehem. He's here. That's the good news that we see in our text in verse 10. So again, Luke 2 paints a picture of how important and how glorious the birth of Jesus is. It's really about the birth of a king. And again, Luke is intentionally drawing out this comparison and contrast to highlight who Jesus is for us. It's the eternal greatness of King Jesus over and against the temporary greatness of the kingdom of Rome and the king here, Caesar Augustus. Two different types of kings we're seeing. In verse 1, and how does this Caesar rule? He rules by this decree that happened a long ways away from Bethlehem, right? So he rules by this decree, but how does King Jesus rule here? He rules, the emphasis on the text, is by descending, coming down from his throne from heaven into a manger. So again, two different types of kings in two different types of kingdoms. So the sovereign creator of the universe becomes a baby, what we all know, right? You can repeat, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. But again, there's wonder and there's joy that should come out of us. Those shouldn't be just familiar words going in one end out of the pipe and out the other. We should see it in color. One commentator noted this, listen, The baby Mary carried was not a Caesar, a man who would become a god, but a far greater wonder, the true God who had become a man. So the wonder and the glory and the beauty of the incarnation really truly is the greatest story ever told. And again, this isn't a fairy tale. It's grounded in a real place, a real setting with real human characters. King Jesus really was born. God really did become man. And again, this is good news. I just want us to kind of enjoy what's in the text together to draw it out. It's good news because who this announcement says Jesus is. It's like you get in the mail the announcement of one of your friends or family who's going to give birth and the birth of the child is named. It's heaven's birth announcement for Jesus. So let's enjoy the implications of this together briefly. The angels say this is good news because of who Jesus is, because he's Christ the Lord. He's the long-awaited Savior. And again, this is packed with Old Testament meaning, right? This has been prophesied. There has been waiting and longing for this Jesus to come, and now he's here. He's the promised Savior who would actually physically be born in Bethlehem. Here, Jesus is the Christ, meaning he's the anointed one. He's the Messiah, Christ is Jesus's identity. It's not his last name, okay? He's the Messiah. And it says, the angels declare that Jesus is Christ the Lord. What heaven the angels are declaring here, God the Father sent his messengers to declare, this is God the Son coming in human flesh. It's Christ the Lord, a God who steps into human history, who doesn't rule and send decrees from afar, He enters into his creation. So Christmas is good news 
not because of what we do, but because of what God has done. And there should be a quote here on the screen I want to read for you from John Stott. It says, the gospel isn't good advice to men, but good news about Christ. Not an invitation to do, but a declaration of what God has done. So Christmas is not about your doing, it's about what God has done. Sending the Savior to be born as Savior and King of the world. So even briefly, we've seen that this birth of Jesus, right, it's really good news. The story of Jesus really is the greatest story ever told, and it's all historically true. Whether you want to believe it or not, it's a matter of historical record. So this brings us to the, the next emphasis in our text, great joy. So maybe this is good news, but why is it good news? Look what your text says. Good news of great joy. Not about great joy or how the emotive feeling of it is that you um, emanate from hearing this good news. It's good news from something. It's good news of great joy. And the reason why Jesus' birth is good news of great joy, it's because God is a God of great joy, right? God is the author of the greatest story ever told. So it's good news of great joy because it's coming from the heart and character of God. It's not only, again, great joy for the recipients of this good news. It's great joy because it comes from the heart of a great and joyful God. And maybe when you hear that, you think like, yeah, that's the preacher up there like trying to throw fancy words around and stuff. So I want to ground us in Scripture. So there's a slide here, just, just briefly again. We're just kind of skipping the surface of this today. But there's two instances in Scripture I want to show you where it specifically states that God is a happy God. And maybe that surprises you. So let's see it from the pages of Scripture. First, 1 Timothy 1 verse 11 says this. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And when you see their blessed God in 1 Timothy 1.11, that means happy God. So Jesus' birth is really the gospel of the glory of the happy God. So this is great joy because the author is a happy God. Later on in 1 Timothy, again, same book of the Bible, chapter 6, verse 15, says this. It says, He who is the blessed, meaning happy, and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So in 1 Timothy 6, 15, Jesus is described as the blessed, the happy, and only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. So Jesus is a happy king. Are we starting to kind of see the color of the story, right? It moves from black and white to color. The joy of the incarnation is a God-centered kind of joy. It's coming from the very character of the creator of the universe, the author of the greatest story ever told. So that can be all well and good. This third week of Advent, we're talking about joy. See, like a lot of nodding of heads. But if, if you ponder the wonder of Christmas the joy of Advent, if there's such a joyful and glorious story, stories rise and fall on conflict, right? And then resolution. So this is, if this is the greatest story ever told, the incarnation, there must be a great problem that needs to be solved by the incarnation. So I want us to press into this just a little bit more. 
One of my favorite old guy authors is Blaise Pascal. He was a mathematician and a theologian, and when reflecting on the incarnation, Blaise Pascal wrote this. The incarnation shows man the greatness of his wretchedness through the greatness of the remedy required. Think about that. Ponder that. The greatness of the remedy, the incarnation, shows us the greatness of our problem, the greatness of our wretchedness. So when Pascal wrote the greatness of our wretchedness, what is he saying in biblical terms? Really what he's saying in one word, the problem is sin. And maybe I'm not supposed to talk about sin on the third week of Advent, right? You came here to hear kids sing and talk about joy and eat Christmas cookies. But if we're really going to savor the reality of the joy of Advent, the joy of the incarnation, we have to talk about sin or we're not talking about joy in a distinctly Christian kind of way. So when we talk about sin, you know, uh, I'm not breaking news to any of you. This isn't shocking. That's not popular, right? That is not a um, word of the year that you're going to hear sin. Sin is something in all cultural moment that is just scoffed at, right? It's seen as like archaic or restrictive. How dare you talk about sin? It's like a power play if someone mentions sin. But really, again, we have to talk about sin to see the full glory and wonder and joy of Jesus coming. So at its core, maybe you've heard this before, but sin at its, in its essence is missing the mark. Essentially, sin is a worship problem. Sin is praising the gifts rather than the giver. Sin is worshiping the creation rather than the creator to find joy, okay? C.S. Lewis wrote this about joy and how it's the story of human history about our greatest problem. C.S. Lewis says, all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy, right? So we're starting to kind of see what the problem is here, looking for happiness in all the wrong places. So functionally, sin is finding our identity, our security, our significance, and our happiness in someone or something other than God. And we're joy-seeking creatures, right? We sin by missing the mark of God's standard. And the reason we do this is because if we're being really honest, we don't really think God's going to make us happy. We don't think God can be trusted. So we seek joy outside of him, and therefore we sin. So our problem at its core is really a wanting problem. This problem of this great wretchedness, it's inside of us. And then again, maybe if you're being really honest right now, you're not whispering this to who you're sitting next to, but in your heart of hearts, you're dismissing this. You're saying, no, sin is just a religious construct. It's to elevate someone in power. It's to basically um, make me feel small, right? But let's explore just for a second what sin is. I really want you to come away with this. Uh, I don't remember who I heard this from, but I heard this a few years ago, and this just really stuck with me, a short illustration about what sin is. So again, we've talked about sin is missing God's standard, but someone says, no, I don't believe in sin. But consider with me briefly really what we're saying. So think about maybe some of you in this room that are like really good at creating things or inventing stuff. And you invented 
this little device that you could carry with you at all times, maybe like a smartphone, and it would record every minute of your life when you said someone shouldn't do this, right? Or someone should do this. So this device is really recording every time you put on record what your own moral standards are, what people should or shouldn't do. And then every time you don't live up to your own standard that you said, the recorder beeps, right? Does a little tick mark. It captures that moment when you didn't meet up to your own standard. So play out, that's your life. This recorder is with you all the time, recording when you don't meet your own standard. Do you think when that recorder is replayed, like you're gonna get 100% on that test? No, I would fail miserably. I'd fail miserably like if that was recording me around for like a day, let alone your whole life, right? And for those who think about in school terms, C's don't get degrees on this test, right? You gotta hit 100% to pass this test. So when we talk about sin and there's just kind of this thing in our culture, we're like, ugh, right? But wouldn't we all agree we don't even meet our own standards? So why is it so far-fetched to think we wouldn't meet God's standards, the God of the universe, so we're all sinners? So these temporary and fleeting joys, remember this problem the incarnation is kind of bringing up if we're really going to press into the wonder and the joy of Christmas? It's bringing up the problem of sin, and sin is that we're looking for joy, even temporary fleeting joy. We're looking for it in someone or something other than God to satisfy us. But haven't we seen here in our text in Luke 2 that the angels announce that Jesus' birth that is coming is good news of, of great joy for all people. So again, what does this tell us about God? God is a God of joy, and he cares about your joy. The incarnation, the birth of Jesus, is compelling evidence that this is who God is. He cares about joy. He's a God of joy. Jesus came to solve our great wretchedness, to solve our joy problem. In uh, John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus tells his followers, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So for the Christian, right, we want a joy that's full, a joy that's grounded in God's eternal character and not our temporary circumstances, like what the Petersons talked about today. So Christian joy, it's not a cheap kind of joy. But again, if you're being really honest, right, so we've heard this, this great remedy, the greatness of our wretchedness, and then this kind of joy, doesn't that just kind of feel too good to be true? Like your first reaction is it does kind of feel black and white, like a fairy tale. Maybe you've even come to church today and you're not bringing joy with you. In fact, you're bringing with you disappointment, hurt, burdens from this last year, right? Christmas season is often the worst time of year for many people because of loss that you've suffered in your life or maybe loss that you're recently going through. So maybe this kind of great joy, the good news of great joy, you can think, yeah, that all sounds well and good, but it's not for me. That has to be for somebody else. But I want us to kind of wrap our time here in Luke chapter 2 by our third point for all the people, right? This good news of great joy is for all the people. And the reason why it's for all the people 
just kind of press into Luke 2 again. There's hints, there's Easter eggs for movie buffs. There's pointers about why Jesus came, why this is good news of great joy for all people. Look at verses 8 and 9. And again, we all know this. The kids who sang up here today probably know this, right? Who was the first announcement of Jesus' coming given to? All the kids would say, shepherds, right? Shepherds, okay. Well, why? If this is the greatest story ever told, and if the author of this greatest story is God, and he's a God of joy, it would be just like him to do some pretty awesome and creative stuff of how this story plays out, and that's just what we see in Luke chapter 2. So Jesus came, and his announcement was to the shepherds, and it was intentional. It's not an accident, and there's a few reasons why. And first, I think it's really important to just um, savor who these guys are, why Jesus, his announcement was first given to the shepherds. And when you look at that moment, that culture, right? Shepherds were the outsiders. They were the nobodies. They were looked down on. They were not important. And yet, who did this amazing announcement of good news of great joy for all the people come to? It came to shepherds. It didn't come to those in the palace. It didn't come to the religious who had it all together. It came to shepherds on the outskirts of Bethlehem. That's pretty amazing, and it shows us what kind of great joy we're talking about. But I want us to press further into the amazingness of this story to really get this great joy. So two things uh, come to mind I just want to leave us with. So heaven made this good news announcement to the shepherds because shepherds point to what this king came to do, to who Jesus is and what he came to do. So the cradle of Jesus points us to the cross of Jesus, okay? So first, uh, in preparing to, to preach Luke 2, I'd never heard this before, and this just blew me away. I, I hope this is like amazing for you as well. So a lot of scholars think that this group of shepherds, the reason why uh, later in our text, right, the announcement is made, they go to Bethlehem. Well, that had to be in that time and place fairly close, right? You couldn't just call up an Uber to drive down to Bethlehem. So these shepherds were fairly close to Bethlehem. Well, why would that be? And the reason why is because these shepherds, these shepherds that the announcement is made to were the shepherds who were watching the animals for the temple sacrifices, right? The sacrificial system of the Old Testament, these shepherds were in charge of watching those animals. So is it by accident that the good news of great joy of King Jesus would come to those shepherds, that points us to who Jesus is, right? That he's the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice to satisfy our sin problem. In John chapter 1, 29, Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So again, heaven is making this glorious announcement, good news of great joy for all the people, to these specific shepherds in this specific time and place. So God is in essence declaring, the Lamb of God is here. God the Son has become man to be the sacrifice on the cross for man's sin. That's what the announcement here in Luke 2 is saying. Heaven is really announcing that you don't have to save yourself. You can't. God, God has come to save you. How awesome is this? That these are the shepherds that the announcement is made to. So there's a reason that the author of the greatest story ever told has the announcement made to these shepherds. But then there's even more. There's one more thing I want to leave us with. 
So this good news of great joy for all the people, it's announced to these shepherds because it foreshadows Jesus being the true and better shepherd, the ultimate shepherd, the kind of good shepherd who loves his sheep so much that he would die for them. These shepherds here that Jesus is making this announcement to, they don't die for their sheep, right? Their sheep are going to die in the temple to be sacrifices. But Jesus, the good shepherd, comes to die for his sheep, to take away their their sin and give them joy everlasting. In John chapter 10, verse 11, just so you know I'm not making this up, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So again, the glory, the wonder, the joy of the birth of Jesus points us to the cross. The cradle points us to the cross. And again, just so we're having the right takeaway that God is a God of joy, Jesus is a king who really is about joy. Hebrews 12, verse 2, what does it say about Jesus going to the cross? It says, Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. The joy set before him. The cradle and the cross are of great joy. Good news of great joy. So without Jesus, we would be just like these shepherds, wouldn't we? Look in the text. It says they had great fear when they first heard this announcement. Only in Jesus, though, will our longings for joy be truly and eternally satisfied. Where that great joy flips into color, right? Because Jesus is our joyful king. And I just want to say, if you're not a Christian and you're here today or in the sound of my voice and and you're hearing this, I'm really glad that you're here. And I would really encourage you to consider what you've heard today about who Jesus is and that he really is this kind of good king who really cares about your joy. I'd encourage you to turn from your sin of trying to find joy in other things and run to Jesus. And then for those of us here at Gresham Bible Church who trust and follow Jesus, I'd also encourage us for our response to Luke 2 on this third week of Advent to be about confession and repentance, to confess that we're far too easily pleased in seeking joy outside of Jesus, to confess and repent that and come to him again. So our seeking for joy will only and forever be truly satisfied in the inexhaustible joy of Jesus. So as we close, I'm going to leave you with a quote. Uh, John Flavel, another old guy, said this, Christ is that ocean in which all true delights and pleasures meet. So the great joy of Advent is about Jesus and Advent and Christmas, like again what the Petersons were talking about, it can uh, give us joy in the present, but it points us forward too, right? So the cradle pointed to the cross and the cradle also points to the crown. And that's King Jesus in all his glory in the new heavens and new earth when we will experience joy everlasting. So the joy of Advent, it's really just an appetizer because for those who trust and follow in King Jesus, this King of great joy, the best things are yet to come. So let me close this in prayer. Father, you are so good. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word always accomplishes the purposes for which you send it. I pray, Lord, today that you will encourage and strengthen your weary saints. For any that don't know you today, Jesus, I pray that you will open up their eyes to see the wonder and glory and joy of Christmas and who you are. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.